If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In the 19th century, the promise of gold brought Chinese immigrants to the West in unprecedented numbers. But before long, friction emerged on the gold fields of Australia, the United States and elsewhere as white communities began to turn on Chinese miners. In her book, The Chinese Question, Mei Nai explores how the experience of gold rushes helped fuel anti-Chinese racism in the West, eventually culminating in exclusionary immigration laws. May's book has recently been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, and we've teamed up with them to bring you conversations with all of the nominated authors. So I spoke to May to find out more. You say in the author's note of your book that the book was inspired by an interaction with one of your students. Can you tell us about that encounter and why it motivated you to write an entire book? I was advising a student who was uh, writing his uh, senior thesis paper in history about California politics in the 19th century. And his focus was not on the Chinese, but he did have some discussion about it. And he said that the Chinese workers were indentured or that they were coolies, which was the uh, pejorative term at the time. And I said, no, that's not true. They were voluntary immigrants. They were not indentured workers. And he said, well, that's what, that's what all these books say. So I realized there was a very bad error in the literature and it had been repeated by historians who wrote after the first error was made. So I determined that I would try to clear the record. Now, the error is important because it was not, it was not an honest error, in my opinion. It was a book written in the 1960s 
and the author wanted to argue that the Chinese were indentured. Uh, and he cherry-picked quotes from congressional hearings that suggested as much. But if you look at those hearings, and I did, and there's over a thousand pages of testimony, that was just one point of view. And it was not even a point of view that came from firsthand experience or knowledge. It were people that said, well, I've heard that, et cetera, et cetera. And there are all kinds of other points of view. Now, that in itself is interesting for a researcher when you have multiple perspectives. You have to puzzle out why are there so many different perspectives. And then future writers just use the same quotes as this first person, which is also not really an honest form of research because you can't just copy what somebody else wrote without checking it yourself, right? So that's what, mo- that's what motivated me to clarify, well, what, were the Chinese indentured or not? And the reason why that is important, the reason why that is not some minor detail is because that was the alibi used to exclude Chinese from coming to America by saying they were like slaves. They were like slaves in the South. They were a threat to free labor. And so this lie, this stereotype, was very powerful, and it underwrote a whole regime of racist legislation. So that's why it's important to say, well, were they? Now, maybe they shouldn't have been excluded anyway, but the rationale that they were unfree persons, that they were unfree labor, therefore they were a threat to American democracy. I felt the need to clear up that point. Mm, So as you say, the book, it puts forward a strong case for the connection between the gold rushes of the 19th century and anti-Chinese prejudice and Chinese exclusion that went on to shape both China and the West. So can you lay out for us where this all started. Tell us about Chinese involvement in gold rushes in the West. The gold rushes in the late 19th century were historical, epic. They attracted millions of people from all over the world, including from China. Chinese were not unusual in going to the gold rushes. In California, people came from the British Isles, they came from Europe, they came from South America, they came from Australia, and they came from China. And I I point to the gold rushes because in North America, as well as in uh, Australia, the gold rushes were the first occasion of large-scale contact between Europeans and Chinese. I mean, there had been contact before, of course, you know, in in the port cities like uh, Canton or even in plantation colonies. But this was large numbers of Europeans or Americans and large numbers of Chinese coming into contact and in roughly the same position, prospectors, ambitious people looking to make their fortune. Uh, it wasn't a case of one, one group being enslaved and the other being free. They were all out part of the scramble. So this is a context of, uh, that's highly competitive That's why they call it gold fever, right? People do crazy things when they think they're going to strike it rich. And and these areas in both Australia and the United States were on the frontiers of uh, settled society. So in a frontier setting, competition has a certain caste to it. You know, it is a free-for-all. There's little law. And it's also important because it's in these frontier settings where basic questions are are asked and and answered, like, who is going to belong to this community, right? If this is an extension of 
the Australian colony of Victoria, or this is an extension of the United States of America. Who gets to be an American? Who gets to be a, a subject, right, in, in Australia? So then you have all kinds of racial uh, questions that enter the picture. Who gets to belong? Who doesn't? Who's going to decide by what means? You know, this is the context for the interaction between uh, Americans and actually everybody else, including the Chinese. Well, what can you tell us about some of those interactions between white settlers on the goldfields and Chinese settlers? White settlers, in the American case, American whites, basically had an attitude of nativism, which is it's all for us and it's not for you. Right. We're entitled to the riches of the Pacific coast and nobody else's. But they did not apply that only to the Chinese. They also applied it to people from Mexico, from France, uh, from Australia. They tried to drive out all the foreigners and they were rather successful in doing that in the first year or two of the gold rush. But when it came to the Chinese, they had a special argument. They went a step further it wasn't just, it's all for us and not for you. It was, it's all for us and not for you because you are like slaves. And so they racialized the Chinese as a coolie race, which was by definition incapable of assimilating into white society. They could never become Americans. They could never understand democracy. They could never have, you know, any kind of political agency et cetera, et cetera. And that was the core racist argument that distinguished the whites' view of the Chinese from uh, other non-Americans. How did that compare to the situation outside of America, in places like Australia, for example? That is a great question, because the Cooley trope was so strong in America. Um, it was so powerful. I expected to find the same charges in Australia, and I didn't. And, um, and that was one of the first real research um, findings, I think, that, that I came to. And, and I figured out that's because there's no experience of racial slavery in Australia. In Australia, unfreedom is convict transportation, right, of the poor English and the poor Irish. So to say the Chinese were slaves wouldn't have gotten very far, didn't have the same kind of purchase. In the United States, it was a kind of racial shorthand that everybody understood. It was a reference to slavery. So in Australia, you know, the whites called um, Chinese heathens. They didn't like their work methods. They thought they wasted water. You know, there, there were complaints about them. And actually, the biggest complaint against the Chinese in Australia was that we are such a tiny colony. We are at the fringes of the British Empire. And Asia, with its teeming millions, is just a stone's throw away. That's what they were afraid of, of being, you know, so-called overrun. And so it was a very different view of the Chinese because they had a different history, a different geopolitical position. So later, you know, decades later, the Cooley trope does come to Australia, but in a different context, in the context of urban labor movements. You're telling a really big story in the book, but you also use the stories of individuals to illustrate that. So in this case, how can we see this prejudice playing out and impacting the lives of Chinese people on gold fields? And what were some of the ways that they responded to that or fought back against it? I would say that um, in California, you know, there were leaders in the community. Uh, some of them had been educated in 
Hong Kong or or in in the port cities in European schools. So they they were bilingual. They knew English, and so they wrote articles. They wrote letters to the newspapers. They wrote pamphlets. So they tried to defend the Chinese. They say we're not slaves. We're honorable people. Uh, we come like everybody else comes to try to make a better life. Of course, you know a lot of people didn't pay that any attention. On the ground, I think the Chinese they persisted. You know there were. Like racial attacks, there were people who came and drove Chinese off of their claims,、uh, drove them out of towns, and、uh, and they often came back because, in fact, the gold miners couldn't be fighting all the time. They wanted to get their gold. So,、uh, you know, I, I found instances of a, a driving out campaign where Chinese were, were run off their claims along a river, and then when I looked at this a census report. Two years later, there were lots of Chinese there. They had all come back, right? So there's at that level there's persistence. In Australia, they were super organized. They boycotted paying the taxes that were levied against them. The colonial government had special head taxes against the Chinese. They had all kinds of taxes, you know, multiple taxes, and it was a form of harassment, also a form of revenue collection for the colonial government. And they just refused to pay. And after five years, they actually rescinded some of those taxes and they lowered others. So there was also a great、uh, kind of mass、uh, boycott movement、uh, that spread all throughout the goldfields in in the colony of Victoria. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Well, I think the Coolie trope has been、um, it's been so powerful. Is a kind of protean idea that you know can adapt to changing conditions, so it gets kind of reiterated and reproduced over time. So well past the years of the gold rush, even into the 20th century. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a seventy-five dollars sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com/historyextra. Just go to Indeed.com/historyextra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit Hersheyland.com/Twizzlers. So in the book, you you carried this story forward. So how did anti-Chinese sentiment that had you know found its voice, if that's the right way of saying it, during gold rushes, how was that spread to other centers of power in the West? Well, I think what what is important to me in this story is the connection between anti-Chinese、uh, racism and policy in the United States and in the British settler colonies. We don't often. Put those two together, and in the late 19th century, 
the uh, United States and Great Britain were the two economic hegemons in the world. Uh, and their financial power increasingly was based on uh, the gold and the gold, the gold used as a monetary, international monetary standard. So part of what I try to do in my book is think about anti-Chinese politics as part of a broader globalization in the world where the global economy becomes increasingly dependent upon credit and investment and money as opposed to resource extraction, right, or, or trade. I mean, those things are also going on. But the role of finance becomes increasingly important in the late 19th century and is what really powers a British economic right, right? The Bank of England is at the center of all this. And the United States is nipping at Britain's heels, right, both in terms of industrial power, but also in terms of its gold reserves and its financial power. So one thing I, I try to do in my book is to connect all these things as, and put it in a context of what's going on with global economic development in the late 19th century. And so as that all developed... How did racist attitudes towards the Chinese play out in the decades that followed? What can you tell us about some of the legislation or the policies that were enforced? The exclusion laws that are passed against the Chinese uh, in the United States, it's in 1882. In Australia, it doesn't come to full fruition until 1901 with Federation and the white Australia policy. They at least were more honest than the Americans. They called it what what they wanted. And so what exactly did these exclusion acts, what did they stipulate? They stipulated that with very few exceptions, Chinese could not immigrate into their countries, number one. Number two, that they could not naturalize and be citizens. So it was a racially based uh, immigration exclusion and exclusion from citizenship. And, and then in the United States, this became the, the foundation for a whole edifice of state laws barring Chinese from holding professional licenses, commercial fishing licenses, could not marry a white person, could not testify in court against a white person. You know, there's a whole uh, regime of discrimination and exclusion. And then more, uh, perhaps not legally, but customarily exclusion from the labor market confined to a very narrow range of of occupations. In Australia, it was more difficult to have laws, um, some of those laws, but Chinese were very marginalized in uh, local economies. So what did all of that mean for the lives of Chinese people in the West? It meant living on the margins. It meant uh, being barred from, you know, full participation in broader community affairs it meant, uh, for, for the most part, exclusion from voting, uh, from the franchise. So they become uh, insular communities where uh, there are Chinese that do very well and make a lot of money uh, as merchants, but most of them are restricted to the Chinese ethnic market. In Australia, actually, they become more successful I think because the laws were not as as strict as in California. In Australia, there are Chinese who become very successful retailers who sell to white Australians, not just to Chinese, especially in some of the more rural areas. They'd be the only uh, retailer for, for many miles. 
There are also Chinese in, in Queensland who were banana plantation growers and mine owners. So there were, there were some areas where Chinese were able to break through, uh, much more so in Australia than in the United States. But in general, Chinese were consigned to a very marginal position in the economy, in social life, uh, and in politics. Something you say in the book is that you want to fight back against this stereotype of Chinese people in the West as passive agents or, as you say, people without power. What are some of the ways that we can find in the historical record that Chinese communities did fight back against this this prejudice? Well, they, you know, they wrote things, they, they went to court, they, they brought lawsuits. Some of the Basic immigration jurisprudence in the United States is based on Chinese cases. So they they were very active in in litigation. They held mass boycotts against tax collection. And so they they did the best they could uh, under very trying circumstances. And when did exclusionary acts and laws generally persist until? Well, the United States Chinese exclusion was repealed in 1943 during World War II, after the United States entered the war. And it was not because they wanted to have Chinese immigrants. It was because Japanese propaganda in Asia accused the United States of being a racist country, with Chinese exclusion being Exhibit A. So it was a war measure to counter Japanese propaganda. Uh, and, And we know that that's what it was because... Well, that's what they said it was. But also they set a very, very low quota on Chinese immigration, 105 a year. That was how many Chinese they were going to let into the country. And not just from China, from anywhere in the world, Chinese person from anywhere in the world, 105 was the limit. So that number didn't really change until the mid 60s when there was a more bigger overhaul of our immigration system. In Australia, the white Australia policy did not fall into the 1970s when there was a greater reckoning in Australia of its of its race relations. What can you tell us about the response of the Chinese state to Chinese exclusion in the West? Well, this is a period after the Opium War when China is kind of thrust into a world of international relations that it had not experienced before. They're thrust into a situation of uh, what the what they call gunboat diplomacy and uh, unequal treaties. And so China considered the exclusion laws to be a piece of those humiliations that China suffered by the West. But this is also a time when China was trying to figure out you know what would be our what should be our relationship to the west not just in terms of diplomacy and and geopolitical relations but in terms of modern science and technology right there was a reform movement in china that believed that china needed to modernize its industry you know needed to have a navy uh, needed to adopt scientific uh, methods but this was a debate. You know, it was not settled quickly. But one thing that the Qing government did was it sent diplomats abroad to Europe to not only to have direct contact with European powers, but also to observe what industry and commerce was like in the West. And so these diplomats brought back uh, a lot of information and news that that fed into this debate going on in the late Qing. Um, But depending on where they were, they also met ordinary Chinese people 
right? And for Chinese immigrants, it was a real departure because they didn't have any opportunity to meet a representative of the emperor before, right? That was something so distant from their lives. And yet there are now consuls in San Francisco and in Melbourne, and the Chinese immigrants go to them with their complaints. And so there is a kind of a channel, maybe it's a back channel, you might say, of the Qing government receiving information from its constituents abroad. And, you know, the, but China was very weak. It didn't really have the power to, to overturn those policies through diplomacy. And what do you see as the long-term impact of all of this, both in the West, in Australia and in America, but also in China? Well, I think the Cooley trope has been, um, it's been so powerful. It's a kind of protean idea that, you know, can adapt to changing conditions. So it gets kind of reiterated and reproduced over time. So well past the years of the gold rush, even into the 20th century, the idea that Chinese are a mass of servile uh, and despotic people uh, persists. And that is reproduced in part by ongoing laws that discriminate against the Chinese, but also it's reproduced through the experience of wars in the Asia-Pacific waged by the United States. World War II, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the ongoing occupation of Pacific Islands. You know, in, in wars, the enemies are always painted as being subhuman, right? You have to get your soldiers to go slaughter other soldiers. You have to convince your your troops that the enemy is, is somehow uh, not fully human. But in the Chinese case or in the Asian case, that, that has a very particular kind of idiom, right? So through the 20th century and all the wars in Asia, certain ideas become a prominent, such as Asian lives are cheap. Asian people consider their lives to be cheap. Or Asians fight in, with barbaric methods, so we have to combat them with like means. You know, in fact, it's the United States that dropped the atom bomb, that used napalm. It's the United States that considered Asian life cheap, not Asian people themselves, right? But this is a lot of the propaganda that got spread. So I think that the Cooley myth has had uh, several afterlives according to changing conditions. That was Mei Nai. Her book, The Chinese Question, The Gold Rushes and Global Politics, is published by W.W. Norton and has recently been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize. We'll be speaking to all of the shortlisted authors over the next few weeks, so keep an eye on your podcast feeds for those episodes. And you can find out more about the Kundal Prize at kundalprize.com. That's C-U-N-D-I-L-L. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.